I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, I'm Adam Levy, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. This episode, Displaced Scientists. A research career can present challenges, whatever the context, from the pressure to publish to searching for a stable academic position. But what happens when progress and stability are ripped apart and a scientist needs to move, not for the sake of their career, but for their very safety? There can be a host of reasons that researchers are driven to flee the country that they have begun their careers in, from war to discrimination. In this episode, we'll be speaking to two scientists about how conflict affected their career paths, and we'll also learn about an organisation that tries to keep scientific careers progressing, even when life suddenly shifts. What's more, each episode in this series concludes with a follow-up sponsored slot from the International Science Council, the ISC, about how it's exploring freedom, responsibility, and safety in science. First up today, I spoke with Hasuni Aludeni, a Yemeni researcher now based in the Netherlands. His academic focus was the environmental impact of industrial waste. We started our conversation by talking about where Hassouni was in his career when it was torn apart by the war in Yemen. I went to Morocco in 2005 for baccalaureate study. After the baccalaureate, I get the master degree in the Abdel Malik Saadi University in Tanja in Morocco. And then when I have finished the master, I get a place for PhD, but... I come back to Yemen for the money for the, the studying. My government stopped the money. What caused the disruption to the funding for your PhD? Because the war. At the beginning for the war, all the embassies leave the country. The second thing, the Ministry of Education stopped all money for, for students. And when did the war begin? In 2015. I didn't have work, I didn't have uh, money, and uh, I didn't have safety. I was, uh, every second, uh, I was worried. I, I live in Sana'a, the, ca- the, the capital of Yemen. Every day, we have problem. And why did you decide to leave Yemen? I tried to find any embassy in, a, in another country. Uh, so I go to Egypt. It was uh, easy for, for us. 
to go to Egypt by a medical uh, report. After eight months in Egypt, I go to the Morocco embassy. I try many times to get a visa, but they, they didn't give me. Then I find an illegal way to go to Europe. Can you describe the journey to Europe? I take a tourist visa to Russia. The transit was in Greece. When I arrived in Greece, I didn't continue my trip. From Greece, I stay in Greece one year. I try to take a, a, a plane to another country because in Greece uh, it was a dangerous situation. Uh, I didn't have work. After one year, I go walk to Albania, then to Kosovo, walking, and then to Serbia, and from Serbia to Czechoslovakia. From that, I traveled by the by taxi Uber to Germany, from Germany by the train to Netherlands. So that three-year journey must have been very difficult. Can you describe how it affected you personally? Yeah, eight months in Egypt uh, without work, without uh, help. I was uh, every day worried from the die. In Greece, sometimes I sleep at the road. Uh, sometimes I didn't have anything to eat. One year in Greece. I don't know, I can't explain, but it was so, so hard. Can you describe what your life in the Netherlands is like? Yeah, Netherlands is good. And I have a residence for five years. Uh, I have house. And, and after one year, uh, when I arrived here, after one year, I brought my wife. And now I live with, with my wife and my new uh, daughter. She is a seven month. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. How does it feel to have your research disrupted by the war, by all this illegal, very difficult traveling? Truthfully, I feel that I waste all the effort that I have done in the past. I feel that I begin from new. Do you think you could continue research in the future? I hope. I hope to finish my PhD and work in my field also. If the, the war stopped in Yemen, I want to come back to my country to see my family, my friend, my, my country, yes. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to, to begin a new life in another country. It's new new language, new people, new traditional, new, new things to, to learn, also new weather. It's hard weather. It's cold here in Netherlands. It's not like my country. How do you think that the world can support displaced researchers like you better? The researchers have not uh, right. They give them not visa to go any country. Now my friend in Yemen, they can't go anywhere. Uh, just Egypt of Jordan. Do you still think about the war a lot and the people in Yemen who are still there? Yeah, yeah, sure. My first doctor in Yemen lived with her mother, my ex-wife. I, I sleep with her every day and uh, also my brothers, my sisters, my family. Every day they have problems. They are afraid, they are worried, they need money. It's not a uh, normal life. And do you feel safe in the Netherlands? Yes, I can tell anything. I can, I can do what I want. But in Yemen, I, I couldn't speak. That was Hassouni Aloudaini. 
Hasuni's career has, for now, been halted because of the war and his relocation. But this isn't the case for all researchers. Some are able to find ways to continue work once they move to another country, even if this work comes with limitations and may only be temporary. This is what Faris Al-Hassan has experienced. He now works as a geoinformation science specialist at Utrecht University, also in the Netherlands. But previously, he's researched water management and drought. Fares is Syrian, and the Syrian civil war had profound impacts on his life and work. He had a scholarship for a master's in France, but the outbreak of the conflict totally changed the path of his career and his life. At uh, that time, uh, the government uh, asked us to do a French uh, language course. Actually, in the end of this course, uh, the, the war started. When I came back to Syria, the war was worse and worse, and then the government decided not to send us to France because the relation between France and uh, Syria at that time broken. I was living in the east of Aleppo, uh, where it was uh, controlled by revolutionists. And uh, my work at Aleppo University were, uh, was controlled by, uh, by government, Syrian government. At the beginning, I was uh, traveling from the eastern part to the western part, but it was really difficult and dangerous because there was snipers on the road. And one time, I remember, there was a bullet. I fell in the bullet near my ear. But uh, that time, I decided to stop uh, traveling. And I also decided to, to leave Aleppo to, to the place where my uh, parents were living in a small village. Can you explain what happened when you were in the small village that your parents lived in? At the beginning, it was controlled by the revolutionists. And then I decided uh, to, uh, to look for tourship by myself. Then I found Erasmus Mendoz program. And I applied uh, for that program, and I remembered I succeeded to get scholarship to do master at Wageningen University. At that time, in 2013, I, I applied, and then also at that time, ISIS entered that area and controlled that area, and then I decided, okay, it's time to to leave. A lot of people listening have no idea what it's like. Can you explain what it was like to actually be in an area which was controlled by ISIS. Yeah, it's really it's really dangerous because killing people for them it's really easy. So you have to be very very careful I remember and all the people afraid and there's no freedom at all. It's also the economic situation was very very bad and I also decided okay it's time to leave this country because it's impossible to live in this circumstances. How did you feel at that time? How was it affecting you emotionally? Yeah, I, at that time I was feeling like, okay, there's no future. And uh, my uh, the only hope is this chulership. Can you describe how you actually traveled to the Netherlands? How did you make it from Syria to Europe? The difficult part to enter Turkey because uh, there was no legal way to enter Turkey from ISIS side. If you want to enter Turkey, you have to look for a smuggler. And I remember at that time, yeah, it was dangerous to do that. But I had to take the risk. When I entered Turkey, I immediately traveled to Ankara. And in the same day, I traveled to Istanbul. I took flight. I told them I need flight 
what price I don't man, I don't mind. And I remember at three a.m. there was flight to to the Netherlands, and I I took that flight to the Netherlands. And then when you did arrive in the Netherlands, were you able to just start your life there immediately? What happened? Yeah, at the beginning, I remember I had to. It's really a completely different world. I followed the email that they sent me email how to arrive to to the university. I followed the email, then in the university there was person took me to my room. They arranged everything for me, but uh, the first night was difficult. I remember because I was alone, and I'm thinking, oh, I am very very far away from my family. It's really long distance. But uh, after that, when the new students start to come and. I start to uh, to have contact with other students. Life start to be nice and happy again. <laughs> and can you describe how you were able to adapt to this very different surroundings that you found yourself in? Yeah, it was for me a really difficult, completely different culture. Just try to look for people from same background, like student from the Gulf countries and uh, gradually I started also to have contact with Dutch student and European and uh, even international student from China from South America yes and then I start to learn about uh, new things and how did your career develop once you were in the Netherlands the first two years I did my master but also it was difficult for me because I all the time was worrying about my family in Syria after graduation the immigration uh, authority here in the Netherlands contacted me and they told me your resident permits are about to expire and you need uh, to decide uh, what are you going to do. I told me, okay, I will be a refugee here in the Netherlands. And it took for me, I think, about six months from the beginning until the end to get like uh, five years permit resident. And after that, I was able to find job. And my first job was at Rainforest Alliance in Amsterdam. It was really a nice job and I enjoyed a lot. But all the time I was looking for PhD and opportunity to do research or to go back to academia. And in 2018, I remember there was severe drought in the Netherlands. I remember I contacted uh, my supervisor at TU Delft and he helped me to develop. And then I did my research at TU Delft and in the meantime, also, I found job at Utrecht University. I, I'm in, a, in Utrecht University, like, helping, like, supporting stuff. I like my work, but for me, what I was looking for is to do PhD and to, after PhD, is, like, becoming a professor or assistant professor. But I found it very difficult here to, to complete in this way. I, I hope, yeah, uh, in the future to be able to do a PhD, but uh, I am not sure. If this visible or not, or not. What do you think that countries around the world could do to support displaced researchers better? Yeah, in the Netherlands there was a lot of support, but it's really difficult because, like for me, I was young when I came to the Netherlands. It was like possible to do master and after that immediately a PhD, but. Yeah, I wasn't able because my family was in Syria. I was worried about my family. I was. All, I also entered in a refugee procedure, so I get gap, and then I start working at Reinforced Alliance. So the gap become bigger. It would be nice to get the support from the beginning, not after getting my permit resident. It's better the support start from the beginning. That was Fares Al Hassan. 
We've heard a lot today about the limitations and challenges researchers face when they have to flee. But what can host institutions and academics do to counter this situation? Around the world, there are organizations that try to act as matchmakers, linking displaced researchers with departments that welcome them and their expertise. One such organization is the Council for At-Risk Academics, or CARA, in the UK. I called up CARA's director, Stephen Wordsworth, to find out more about the organization and the work that they do. CARA is a charity. Uh, It was founded in 1933 by leading academics and scientists in the UK, uh, led by William Beveridge, who was then the director of the London School of Economics. And... It came about just after the Nazis had come to power, and one of their first edicts was to ban non-Aryans, as they called them, in the public service. Uh, Of course, the target was mainly Jews. Uh, And a lot of senior academics who were of Jewish origin, uh, Jewish connections, were being expelled from their jobs at German universities. Beveridge was naturally... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Horrified by this, he got a group of people together, and within a few weeks, uh, 41 of them signed what is the founding statement of what is now CARA, which was to to raise funds to support academics who were at risk. Can you give a sense of the the range of crises that CARA has had to respond to in the past? After the war, of course, at first, I think people thought that's probably it, the job the job is done because it wasn't done at all because of. Uh, the rise of communism, the, the Iron Curtain and all that, and a whole range of other crises. And also, and Cara's boundaries widened all the time. So um, we we ended up having you know, a lot of people coming to us from uh, apartheid South Africa, from parts of South America, where there were various military junctures, and many other parts of the world where there were crises of one sort or another, and where essentially academics became targets. And I think academics tend to become targets perhaps secondary to journalists in the sense that they, they're people who ask awkward questions and don't to t- listen politely to the answers they give them, but then you know, ask more questions. Any reason that someone might have to flee their country and to seek refuge will be a huge disruption to their lives. Is this disruption shifted or any different for academics? There's the same disruption. And of course, the people we're helping uh, usually don't come by themselves. They will usually have a, a partner, may have children, so often what we're trying to do is find a, a way of supporting a whole family. And our objective always is to support people through what we call our fellowship program, uh, where we work with uh, universities here in other parts of the world, to arrange places to support people. But the, the aim is always that they will ultimately be able to go back. The, the, the crisis made quite short-lasting, and then they, they can go back. In other cases, it endures. So we have people now, for example, from Syria, who came out in eight, eight or more years ago, who still tell us that they want to go back. But when that day is going to come, we don't know. You know, They carry in their heads the intellectual capital of their own countries and a lot of their own personal experience and learning as well. And it's really, from the point of view of potential university hosts here in the UK and elsewhere, uh, that, that has value. So they're not just coming to be supported. 
they're coming bringing with them their own experience and knowledge, sharing that while they're here. And that can then be the basis of long-lasting partnerships. For academics who do have to urgently relocate, what are the kinds of barriers that they would face in terms of continuing their research, continuing their careers? Well, the the way you work is we have a a network now of 133 uh, UK uh, university and research institute partners. But essentially, when someone contacts us, we go through a process as quickly as we can of establishing who they are, establishing their their qualifications. And so by the time we go out to one of our our partner universities, saying, here is somebody we think you might be interested in hosting. And when that university then, as we hope, agrees to take that person on, they will be the visa sponsor. And it's important, these people we're helping, they're not coming here as refugees or as asylum seekers. Without some sort of support, of course, they would have very few opportunities. They wouldn't be able to get a visa to get away. And in some cases, if they're coming out of somewhere like um, Syria during the war, they might have been killed. Coming out of Afghanistan, of course, now a lot of Afghans are applying to us for support, where very recently the Taliban confirmed that women would no longer be allowed into higher education at all. Female part of the faculty of every university and all the female students are suddenly at a a complete dead end. So there are a lot of initiatives out there um, trying to help people. But unfortunately, it's uh, a never-ending task in some ways because the, the range of issues that people are escaping is pretty wide. It can be somebody caught up in a war. It can be somebody who has written or said something which has upset somebody else. And that somebody else could be a government. It could be uh, an extremist group of some sort who might decide that what this person has said is blasphemous. Uh, it can be something that is unique to that person. It could be their ethnicity, their religion, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity in countries where that can get into trouble. Could you give a sense of the scale of the impact that CARA has been able to make over the years? Well, if you go back to the 1930s, I think we had between 1,500 and 2,000 people who were helped one way or another. Uh, 16 went on to get Nobel Prizes. We, we've been speaking about all of this in very, I guess, in very general terms. I just wonder whether you have any particular personal anecdotes or stories or researchers you've worked with. I think in general, I mean, the people we've worked with, they are very varied, from a wide variety of backgrounds, uh, many different countries, different parts of the world. Uh, what is striking is how, once they are here, uh, they really just want to get on with their academic work and their academic careers. And that, for them, is what they're, they're holding on to through all the uh, tragedy and upset going on around them, whatever the situation was they were getting away from. Uh, that gives their, their lives meaning and purpose. And when we meet them, it's really very emotional. And it's, it's really very striking how you know, people feel really very pleased with what's been able to what we've been able to do to help them uh, to get them away um, and from their point of view you know, they've got a chance to to continue their careers build their futures again uh, having at one point many of them at least must have seemed almost lost everything that was stephen wordsworth the last of our interviewees for today's episode in this series we're looking at many of the ways freedom and safety can be affected by in-person interactions But how does the online world affect researchers' ability to work, for better and for worse? We'll answer that question in next week's episode. Now it's time for our sponsored slot from the International Science Council about how it's exploring freedom, responsibility and safety in science. Thanks for listening. I'm Adam Levy. If we can build trust through science, 
that may well lead to greater trust in the other aspects of the multilateral tensions that are there at the moment. Now, that may sound utopian, but in fact, I think it's a very real, real potential for the role of science. Feelings of isolation are very common among scientists and researchers during the war. Questions persist as to what is the future of knowledge production in the home country, what are the chances to rebuild the home country, where are female scientists in all of those? Hello and welcome to this podcast series from the International Science Council on Freedom and Responsibility in Science. I'm Marnie Chesterton, and this time we're looking at the role of the state. What responsibilities do states have when it comes to these issues? Should countries in conflict collaborate with each other scientifically? And how do political tensions or wars affect the integrity of science and the lives of scientists? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights implies the right to participate in free and responsible science. And in 2017, UNESCO developed recommendations on how countries should support science, promote ethical conduct and give scientists the freedom to carry out research that can provide value to society. 197 countries signed up to their obligations in 2021. UNESCO reviewed progress on the recommendations and only 37 countries made voluntary reports on how they were performing. This is Sir Peter Gluckman, President of the ISC and former Chief Scientific Advisor to Prime Ministers in New Zealand. The issue is, of course, countries willingly sign up. In reality, you're then reliant on the goodwill and the nature of the governments in an individual country for how it's actually reflected into practice. And that's the nature of the reality of national interests versus multilateral agreements. And certainly the International Science Council will be taking an active role in how countries are following the recommendations they signed up to in 2017. Given that it's easier for nations to sign up to recommendations than it is for them to implement them, what can the scientific community do to make sure those responsibilities are upheld? Every country faces a set of issues that required science to solve them. And scientists need to engage with their society and they need to understand and learn the, the skills of interacting with the policy community. That generally means scientific organisations need development, be them academies or, or disciplinary bodies. And that can be done in countries at every scale of development for the least developed to the most developed country. The International Science Council can help countries develop those skills and it has its own role in working with UNESCO and with the United Nations system to encourage the use of science for better policy making for the health of the planet, the health of ourselves and for economic growth around the world. According to Peter, for science to live up to its potential, states need to develop a kind of science ecosystem. First of all, it must have people who are knowledge generators. It must have universities. Depending on the scale of the country, it may need research institutes. Secondly, it needs to organise its scientific bodies pluralistically so that it can synthesise knowledge, which may come from within the country or from internationally, to actually be of value to society. 
And thirdly, ideally, it needs to work out with governments the skills of knowledge brokerage so it can advise governments and advise society of what science can do, but equally what is beyond science and science cannot answer. I think humility and trust are the key attributes of that interface. Helping to grow ecosystems like this is part of the ISC's vision to advance science as a global public good. But this effort faces huge challenges in the years ahead, amid global crises like climate change and pandemics, as well as geopolitical shifts. And the invasion of Ukraine by Russia in February 2022 has brought renewed attention to complex issues of science, conflict and collaboration. Science is at the heart of conflicts, because science drives technologies. The history of warfare is effectively the history of technologies. And so you can understand the difficulties that countries in conflict have, finding the boundary between where collaboration continues to be possible, as we're seeing at the present time in the space endeavour, and where collaboration is obviously not possible. My own view is that the key issue is what happens when the conflict resolves. All the parties know that science will be critical in the post-acute conflict phase. But I think in the acute phase of conflict, we've just got to accept that there will be other issues in play. So I think science can play a role. And certainly that's what we in the ISC see our role will be uh, when we get past the hot phase of the war. So science does have an important role in building relationships and diplomacy after conflict. But what happens when states fail in their responsibilities towards science? like when they collapse because of war, or when they impose political and ideological agendas on science. The scientific environment in Syria got affected significantly by war as international sanctions, lack of facilities, local bans to collaborate with international academic and research centers, in addition to lack of research quality and quantity. So all of these things in addition to domestic chaos and regional tension. This is Sajah Al-Zobi, a development economist at St. Mary's University in Canada, who worked as a scientist in Syria. Governmental researchers and scientists are not allowed to cooperate or work with foreign organizations outside of Syria without a permission. Getting permission was almost an impossible process, which takes a long time and has no guarantee. Of approval. So, from my experience, I had to use two types of resume. One for the internal use, so I don't mention any of the international collaboration. And the other one with all my achievements and my work history, this only for international use. I couldn't use it in, in Syria. So these restrictions can cause a lot of trauma and mental and physical exhaustions. And some of these limitations are more severe when it comes to a female researchers. Sanja points out that in situations like this, scientists and researchers clearly have different responsibilities and priorities when it comes to their work. Researchers in war should follow specific techniques to be safe. Field work in conflict areas is very harsh and is very dangerous. So the priority at that time, you know, it's first to protect yourself and then you can produce uh, knowledge. 
But the international scientific community has new responsibilities too, not to leave the affected scientists behind. Global and international scientific bodies should take the responsibility to save science and scientists in those collapsed states. In terms of supporting academics and uh, scientists, so here it's very important to maintain their academic identity either in Syria or outside of Syria. So this could be by providing access to academic uh, databases and journals, finding mentorship uh, programs. And in terms of supporting the future students, the first and foremost is by learning English, focus on English language and fill gaps in learning individual disciplines. There are many issues here how to actually support institutions and individuals in terms of science. But I think such support could impact significantly on those who remain in exile or even those who are still in Syria. And it's very important to build peace. And I think these are the keywords to build peace. That's it for this episode on freedom and responsibility in science from the International Science Council. The ISC has released a discussion paper on these issues. You can find the paper and learn more about the ISC's mission online at council.science forward slash podcast. Next time, we'll be looking at new technologies. How do scientific responsibilities change in the light of technologies that can bring benefits, but also harms? And what can an indigenous perspective bring to our thinking on these issues? 